Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Comics Collective, the weekly podcast where we talk about our favorite comic books and graphic novels, and on episodes like these, with the people who make them. Today I am joined by Andrew McLean to talk about his new comic book, Snarlagon, that is currently live on Kickstarter. How's it going, Andrew? Pretty good. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. So for any of our listeners that don't know, you are the mad genius behind Headlopper, one of my favorite comics of all time. Um, How would you describe your comic book work for someone who may not have come across it yet? Um, You know, I guess it's hard to describe. I guess my art style's in the vein of like Mike Mignola or something like that, where it's like shape-based, a bit cartoony. Um, So I like to kind of you know, draw from relatively adult themes of, you know, like Headlopper is, you know, a violent, you know, funny fantasy story. Um, but my drawings are relatively friendly. So they're, there's a, it's kind of like cartoon violence. <laughs> I like that. You could put that underneath just about all of your projects. Cartoon violence. So far, yeah. <laughs> and the people will come. <laughs> so... This newest project, Snarlagon, it is a kaiju smackdown comic book. What mm-hmm. took you from comedy fantasy with Headlopper towards kaiju with Snarlagon? Yeah, well, I mean, largely I love monsters and I'm really nostalgic for, uh, I was born in the 80s, so I'm really nostalgic for a lot of like old monster movies with practical special effects and everything. Um, so for me, you know, it's all in the same vein to to a certain degree. Like, Headlopper is loaded with giant monsters, so it's practically a fantasy kaiju book, you know? In <laughs> uh, like, so, so yeah. So, for me, my inspirations for, you know, starting out for, for Headlopper were, like, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger playing, like, Conan the Barbarian and, like, Ray Harryhausen's amazing stop-motion creatures in uh, like Clash of the Titans or Jason the Argonauts or something like that. I just was, I just loved, you know, any movie that had like special effects and monsters in it growing up. And so of course that includes, you know, kaiju movies as well. Um, and I had a friend who was like in, obsessed with Godzilla. And so even before, you know, we had the internet and things were easier to find, he was always going way out of his way to try to, I don't know how he even did it, you know, without the internet, but somehow he was always getting these, these Godzilla, you know, VHS tapes that weren't even dubbed yet. And he'd just be like, I don't know what they're saying, but check out these cool fights. <laughs> um, and so I've just always loved that stuff. And largely I'd say that my comics in general, you know, are, usually kind of a love letter to something I'm very nostalgic for, you know, I can usually trace it back to something I fell in love with, you know, when I'm a kid. And so, you know, Snarlagon's no different, you know, it's really inspired by, you know, Godzilla movies, Gamera movies, but also just any old, 
monster movie. Like I wanted to feel like it would have been done with like, you know, either rubber suits or with uh, like stop motion. And instead of cars, they're like little miniatures and stuff. So I really wanted to kind of be reminiscent of, of those types of movies really. So when you're translating that very specific tone into the comic book medium, what were some of the challenges and successes you found in making classic kaiju on the page? I mean, I think one of the real challenges for me was it's hard to like, for me, I'm I'm trying to like make a movie on paper. Like I wanted to feel like film and I wanted to feel like it's, you know, that it's not, I don't want it to feel real or I'm making an attempt to put you in that world. I'm making an attempt to put you in the seat of a movie theater kind of experience, you know? And so it's like, what is, you know, those are like, those are the, the real challenges. Like, what does that even mean, you know? And so for me, I think it's worked, you know, a few times in the book, at least. I'm trying to do some things that are like, you know, uh, you know, kind of in camera special effects would be things like forced perspective, you know, like a lot of old kaiju movies, they would do things, especially since the monsters are so big where they would show like a city and you can see some humans moving around in the foreground. And then in the midground, you'll have like buildings. Right. And then in the film or whatever their process is, they've kind of cut, you know, the, the horizon line at the buildings and then the monsters behind it. But, you know, we watch it, we can tell, <laughs> you can tell that it's, it's like two films spliced together or, you know, it's like, it's kind of, it's a trick of the eye. And so I try to draw things like that. So if, if Starlagon is coming up behind buildings or from behind a hill or something, there's one page where he comes up from behind a hill. It's his like first big reveal. And I think I pulled that off fairly well where it looks like the way he's positioned it doesn't, he wouldn't, if he was standing on the hill or standing behind the hill, it wouldn't, he wouldn't stand so perfectly straight, you know, and I have his arms kind of flailing awkwardly. So I was really trying to, to, you know, to do that, make it feel like some of the strange camera angles um, that they would use in, in, you know, those movies trying to make these monsters seem bigger than they are, things like that. A couple of places I put in some little hidden like strings on planes as if there was like a cable hanging or something little tiny details that you know only a reader who really gives a shit about that kind of stuff would find um and like cars i try to draw the cars to look oversimplified i want them to look like toys rather than you know actual cars eventually in the 80s they would start using things like b-roll for a lot of monster movies and there was less and less miniatures being used but i always loved it when you could tell it was just a it was a plastic little fire engine. I just thought that's so fun. So I try to draw it to feel like that. That rules. I mean, half of the fun of the old kaiju movies are looking at the behind the scenes. You see a Godzilla yeah. with his head off, and there's just a guy just totally. standing in a, a great little model. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm really trying to make you feel that, but on paper, if possible. So a big part of kaiju films is figuring out how to ground the viewer with like a human narrative next to the kaiju and there's varying successes with those how did you approach the human element with snarlagon yeah i agree it's like so often in kaiju movies it's like you can get to the end and be like 
did the kaiju even know those humans existed? <laughs> like they have two parallel stories that don't really intersect. Um, in this case, you know, they could they could intersect more in terms of Starlagon because it's also kind of a little bit of satire. So like I'm also working on a Godzilla book right now where a huge part of my focus for the Godzilla series was making sure that the humans are like a part of the kaiju story. But where this one, Starlagon is is more of like a, it's kind of like a comedy and I'm leaning really heavily into, you know, a lot of the kaiju movies like Gamera were made for children. And so they kind of make the child the hero sometimes. Uh, and, and you're just like sitting there, you get all these adult scientists and like, you know, people in the military and they're just like, the kid is somehow solving, <laughs> the kid is somehow solving the, you know, the weakness of the monster or something. So I try to lean into those types of things. So story-wise, in terms of the connection of the humans and the, um, and the monsters, they're not that tight in Snarlagon because that's kind of the nature of those old movies sometimes. Um, it's more like this, it's more like Snarlagon, you know, ruins these kids day. And then these kids end up having to try to save their family because they basically are there at the crash site when Snarlagon comes to earth. And so the kids feel responsible for warning all the, their family and their friends that look, you know, these angramites these like big bugs and, and Snarlagon, they're headed for the city. They're going to crush it. And so the big story is, A, can we stop the Angramites from destroying the city? And when Starlagon comes and uh, gets their back and helps them out with that, how do they get out of the city now and survive? So it's much more about the humans surviving, you know, the, the, the Angramites and Starlagon than them being really a part of it. I love that. I love the designs for Snarlagon and the Angramites. What was your process like for designing kaiju iconography? I think I, the one, there's a few things. Like for me, I love how in the, you know, in the older, like so many times you look at the different, the wide variety of, you know, Godzilla suits and everything, but, you know, the eyes don't usually move in the suits. And so the eye is always dead center and never moves. And so it always looks rather friendly. Again, like these movies, even though this, like the first Godzilla is pretty grim and scary, but as it goes on, it's more and more for kids. So they always felt like the eyes often in the, uh, on the kaiju were kind of friendly. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, you got this big scary mm -hmm. monster, but there's just one little thing. And so I really tried to make sure that at least the eyes always stay really friendly on both Snarlagon and the Angramites um, and don't move. They're always dead center because I want them to feel, you know, like puppets or something. Um, so that was a big thing is get the eyes right. And I just experimented, um, you know, with different shapes and things for Snarlagon in particular because I want wanted him to be kind of, you know, have a scariness to him, but also be lovable in a way like, I think that's a thing, you know, is that, yeah, they're these big scary monsters, but there's something somehow still really lovable about them. And so where they don't have, where there's no dialogue for Star of the Gun, I tried to, I went through a bunch of different versions of them that I'm like, how do you do something both classic, like very classic kaiju looking, something that's still, 
you know, a beast, semi-scary, but also like has a cuteness to it. And so it, it did take me a long time to figure those out. The anger mites, they're a little easier. They're kind of like, you know, I love Miyazaki's uh, Nausicaa manga. The movie's great too, but the manga is like my favorite book. Um, and so I just thought, I was like, I should do some kind of bugs, you know, and, and do some kind of like very Miyazaki type shapes. Because bugs I could do, you know, you can you can do a whole bunch of them in like, in Starlog on doesn't beat up, just fight one monster. He fights like a whole bunch of them, you know? Mm-hmm. So those are the things that were in my mind where make it look like someone could stand in the suit and try to ride that line between like what's cute and likable and lovable and yet still a monster and scary and kind of classic. So kind of like kind of lizardy, but um, yeah, I don't know. And shapes. A lot of like some of my favorite kaiju, like Gaios from Gamera has all these straight angles and things uh, that are very abstract shapes. So I tried to inside the design hide interesting, just shapes that like kind of carve out a silhouette um, kind of like some of those old designs did. That is super cool. Um, so you've talked about like front putting the kid up front because Kaiju make the kid the hero. You talked about making the kaiju designs a little bit more kid friendly, like those later movies. And in the press release for this, you call this an all ages comic. I guess how mm-hmm. was your approach different with Snarlagon trying to make it more all ages than maybe something like Headlopper? Honestly, I just didn't think about it. Um, Generally, I tried to just create something from a place that, especially like this, like one of the reasons why it's self-published even is because I didn't want the pressure. I wanted to try to create as much in a vacuum as possible and just make something that, you know, uh, is enjoyable for me to make. So I didn't actually think about who the audience was beyond just have fun, you know, have fun making this book and worry about selling it later. Um, But where so much of it was inspired by a lot of old, you know, monster movies from all over the world, but there was such a large collection of them that are kind of kid friendly already. Um, It was just kind of inherent in the book. Like I realized that there was only a couple instances that really locked it into a book for adults where I just had, you know, I had like, an F-bomb or two in there, and they were just there for one joke. Do you know what I mean? And so I realized Mm -hmm. that already being inspired by such kid-friendly material, it was like like one or two pieces of dialogue shy of being something that everybody can read. And so I realized like it wasn't stronger because I had a few cuss words in there. And so I was like, if I just take those couple pieces of dialogue out, then it's available for everyone to read, you know, I don't get, I don't single people out or whatever. Um, and so f- that was exciting to me. The idea, cause like I loved art as a kid. So the idea that, you know, take changing two pieces of dialogue made it available for, you know, a 10 year old to read a monster comic is I like that. So really I I've been saying that it's like written for adults, but it's suitable for kids because I did was not thinking about, you know, who the audience was until after I was almost done drawing the thing. And I really like that because so much of my experience with kaiju movies was watching it with my dad, right? My Mm -hmm. dad was this big nerd about monster movies and fantasy, Mm -hmm. a lot of the same stuff that you talked about. And 
my o- the only reason I came in contact with those because he wanted to watch all these movies and it's something we can yeah. do together. And so <laughs> yeah, it feels it feels right to make an all ages kaiju movie. Like if you're like, well, sorry, son, you can't watch this. It's got a gratuitous <laughs> sex scene in it. It'd be like, this feels yeah. wrong. Why are yeah. You that's that how I that felt. Song? Yeah. And like, and even the places that were adult, they still stood out as being kind of standing out away from the rest of the material in the book. So I was like, you know what? I'll just, I'll just be true to the, you know, source material. And, uh, yeah. And just leave it kid friendly. Absolutely. I guess, what do you think is the larger appeal of the kaiju film? Like, as a genre, what do you think brings us back to these monsters? You know, I think, you know, that's a good question. I'm not sure. I think it's just cool. Like, big monsters already are just cool. And it's always exciting to see you know, destruction of some sort. And so, I mean, there's never a kaiju movie where they just traipse around the desert. You know what I mean? They always, they always break something, you know? So it's hard, it's hard to say exactly. I think what brings me back again is I am always fascinated with how things are made. And so even as a kid, I was always like, just curious about that kind of thing. So the characters and the stories and the crazy creatures and monsters are already cool enough and enticing enough in the crazy situations. And it's, and it's scary too, right? The idea that like you could just be crushed like a bug. We're not, we're not used to that. Um, but yeah, I think what really locks it in for me is I, I like things like puppets and, you know, stop motion. So I also like the way it's made. I can't help but always kind of, enjoy watching it from that mindset like man what were they doing to get that you know i don't know why but you talking just made me think like it's a bummer jim henson never did any godzilla <laughs> stuff i was like i right. realized those are different yeah. i was like i want to see those weird puppets as just a straight up puppets marionettes or something yeah <laughs> that could be perfect um so speaking of how things get made you are one of the increasingly rare writer artists in the comic book industry. So when you approach something like Snarlagon, do you find that you're doing page layouts and art breakdowns first? Does the script come first? What does your process for creating a comic look like? Yeah, I write full scripts, pretty detailed scripts for myself. I don't think that's super typical of the, you know, cartoonist writer artists. Um, but I, I, for me, where I, when I first started making comics, I was working with other writers. And so that was a lot of the way I just learned to make comics. And so when I first started to write some things for myself, I didn't even think twice about it. It didn't, didn't even occur to me to make it any other way than to write a script. Um, but that said years later, I still like being that organized. I like, I like the idea of not really knowing where you're going is so scary to me. <laughs> like, I mean, some, some cartoonists don't even know where the end of the story is, you know, or even like, you know, writers, novelists, like the idea that you don't know the end, you're going to figure it out as you go. <laughs> seems crazy to me, yeah, but crazy. yeah. So I'm just not like that. So I plan everything out beforehand. So I do a detailed script. Like it's, there's no shorthand. Like I could give it to someone else to draw it. Um, and, uh, yeah. And then I do layouts and yeah, just move through the process. I'm pretty organized throughout it. I like that. So 
something I like a lot about your comics is the specific beats you create with panels. Uh, a good friend of mine, Matt Draper, did a video on your Headlocker oh, yeah. series. Mm-hmm. And he pointed out the use of an extra panel in a lot of your action. That mm. there is like the beginning of the action, the result of the action, and that's how a lot of cartoonists do it. But you always yeah. insert a the doing of the action, the head lopping. Yeah. Um, so that's something that you script, or do you kind of find the beats of the page as you go? Because that that seems crazy to me that you're thinking that far ahead. Uh, I like do that. script it. There are times that when you get to the page, you realize that you can slide things around, and like if you want to expand or whatever, you do have those things but honestly i never i've heard that before i've never never like consciously thought this is something i'm going to do that i haven't seen before it's just kind of something that um felt or feels natural but also honestly at the end of the day i don't make a lot of comics that are standard length like you know your standard floppy is like 18 to 22 pages or something and that always seemed very like very quick to me and not very many pages to like tell to tell story or expand and like have moments of um you know just tone or something or atmosphere uh and so you know even from the beginning of headlopper i've always done it you know headlopper single issues are anywhere from generally like 50 55 to 35 pages like i kind of let the story dictate um but i think as a result of that i have a little bit more room to add a couple extra panels. Do you know what I mean? Like I'll probably Mm -hmm. take the amount of story that's, you know, 20 or 30 pages worth of story, but I probably have it stretched out, you know, to 45 or or 50 pages. So I probably just honestly probably just have a little bit more breathing room than your average comic artist because I'm the writer, you know, it's like I'm writing when I'm writing, I'm thinking, what are the things I want to draw? You know, what are the things that will be fun and exciting? Um, and so you can just give yourself all kinds of gifts as a writer. Be like, it's going to be awesome to take three panels to describe this action rather than just one or something. So, yeah, that's it's just fun that way, I guess. I like that. I like as well the prioritization of something like atmosphere and tone. You are right. I feel like those are the first things to go on the cutting floor when you're getting down to 20 pages. And I think that's a lot of the magic of your comics and especially even in the preview I've got of Snarlagon, the the willingness to have just big two page spread fights, big splash page of Snarlagon coming up over that hill. It's these little moments that sell the scale of this book, but then also the the tactility of it. Like you said, like it does look like a rubber suit. And I can only see that because it's blown up so big and not because it has to be part of another page that's also progressing the story forward so yeah i think it comes through really well in the art well thank you yeah i mean that was one of the things you know about this was like i knew that i had i i knew that originally i was like oh i'll do like 15 pages or something really short and then i realized i could have expanded it to like 100 pages and i was like all right i gotta pick a middle ground that's like (laughs) digestible or whatever but i still i often even with headlopper feel um you know, like I want to expand it and slow down more than I, I always feel like I'm, I'm always squeezing, you know, whether I want to or not. But that was one of the goals with Snarlagon was in to step outside of Headlopper for a second was to be able to do a project, 
that was just a fun kind of one-off and really catered to, to artwork in a way that, you know, when Headlopper first started, it was easier to cater the stories to artwork because I didn't have a whole lot of story yet. You know, the further you get in a story, the more you've got to just keep everything going. Um, and Snarly Gone was kind of like a, just a little playground. And so the thing is, the thing's loaded with double page spreads and stuff because it's as much as it's a, you know, a story and a kaiju story, it's a very art forward book. You know, it's painted and it's, you know, I, I did a lot of the stuff different than normal. It's loaded with like stippling and dots and, and paints. And I don't know. Um, so it's definitely like art forward book. So there's lots of those big moments of just, you know, maybe a cliffhanger resolving, but it resolves into a, you know, double page explosion, you know, stuff like that. That rolls. I wanted to talk about the painting. It is stunning. When did you know in the process that you were going to go with the blue tones and the like ink washing or the painting that's going on here? I knew that I wanted to do the painting fair, fairly early on in the blue tones as well. I think um, for me, you know, I don't, if I do any one thing over and over again, it makes me crave to do something else and just switch it up. So I do lots of like, kind of like art experiments and things like that. And to say switch to painting or washes, like say in Headlopper, felt like too big of a change. I did uh, washes and whatnot in Apocalyptic Girl, um, but I was enjoying getting into painting and wanted to do more of it, but I couldn't justify, say, taking Headlopper to like full-time painting. It's too much work and it's a big deviation from the rest of the series. And so, you know, I knew pretty early on I wanted to draw Snarlagon a little different just to, you know, scratch that creative itch to do something a little different to stretch my legs um i didn't plan on doing like all the dots that are in it, a lot of stippling i was just going to do paints but all the different all the little pointillism pieces in there it just came from snarling i just imagining snarling on skin being textured or the anger mites they've got these like like tentacles or whatever and i just kept picturing them you know like i said as like rubber suits so i really pictured being able to see those textures and so i really wanted to you know i started to dabble with it a little bit and next thing i know snarlagon was just covered head to toe in little dots yeah um but yeah i don't know what else i was gonna say about that i thank you for all the extra work that's all i've got to say <laughs> it looks beautiful i cannot imagine well, I doing that say, but yeah, you wow. asked about blue that's right i honestly Tinting it blue just feels calm to me. I just think, you know, just think the books I do have that are printed all in blue or like a, the books I have that are, I say, like black lines and like blue shadows and stuff. That really limited palette thing I find just really comforting. Um, it's very pretty. Um, and also, I, you know, it, it helped give me a way to not have to do another step. Like I didn't have to go do full color or anything. I could just take my painted pages and tint them all one color. Yeah. And I mean, it. it's again, reminiscent of the early Kaiju films for me, right? Um, a, a detail that I love, 
one of my first big impressions of kaiju movies when I was little watching with my dad was, man, these people are talking weird. Like it wasn't even yes. just that, like the mouths didn't line up like that really took me out of it at first. My dad was like, you're just going to have to get over that. But then like <laughs> the translated into English phrases yeah. that would be said in those movies threw me out of it all the time oh, yeah. and then brought me right back into loving the cheese. How did you tackle the dialogue for this book? Well, it's like, I think so many of those movies have that kind of weird cadence to them. Like, yes, all the stuff that was translated from other languages, they are, that seems, you know, that seems inevitable. But even like, you know, I, I recently watched The Blob again, which I hadn't seen, you know, in forever, which was one my dad had really liked when I was a kid. And uh, it just seems like there's a line as soon as you watch, I don't know if it's 70s or 60s, it's almost like there was like a, a cadence that people were supposed to speak on television for some reason. Yes, uh, yeah. yeah, so I did. I tried to write in in a little bit of that cadence where it's like, it's just like you see it and you're like, well, nobody talks like this. Like, yeah. and I'm like, this, people probably didn't talk like that in the 50s, even though they made TV that sounded like in that in the 50s or whatever. But yeah, I tried to write it in that kind of old movie cadence. I really didn't want to lean on, you know, the idea of it being, say, translated or something. Um, but I did want it to feel like, yeah, like it's like a 50s or 60s movie. I love that. I I love your ability to make this feel like something that has been made. Like there is art that puts yeah. you right into it. It feels like a portal to another world. But this always feels oh, like an artifact. That? It. Like you said, it feels like I'm watching a movie you. that was made by people. I guess what what details do you feel like including really helped get that tone you were going for across? What, that someone else other than me made it? <laughs> no, just that like someone made it, right? So you yeah. said you wanted this to feel like you were watching a movie. You wanted it to feel like they had rubber costumes on, like. That's not how Headlopper feels, but that is absolutely no. how Snarlagon feels. Like, what? Yeah. How did you go about doing that? I th it's hard to put your finger on. You know, I think it's the combination of the a variety of maybe stranger choices, like you know things like the you know fake forced perspectives, or you know the choice to draw you know a car that looks like a like a literal matchbox, you know, or something. And then that mixed with, uh, you know, the strange way that they speak. I think it's probably the combination of those choices. Um, but, and honestly, I'm glad to hear you say it because that's what I'm going for, but you have no idea if you've hit the mark. You just know, I've seen, you know, these are movies that are great to watch while I'm drawing because a lot of them are really stinking boring. And so like you can, <laughs> you can tune out until the monster fight. Right. And so I just feel like I've heard and seen countless hours of, you know, boring old monster movies. <laughs> uh, and I've just, you know, heard and seen so many of them. I'm like, there's kind of like a pattern to a lot of them, similar stories, you know, similar, you know, almost all of them are like, you know, we got to stop this monster. We've got to use science or, you know, military might. And I was like, that's like all of them. That's like, <laughs> that's like all the movies. Uh, and I love them for that. So I didn't want to like say rock the boat. And it, it like the whole thing's built on like, like 
tropes and cliches and and it's very much a love letter to what already exists rather than trying to like you know strike a new path in you know the kaiju genre or something yeah it is comforting to hear you say that they're a little boring too because like i love them then i have some friends that love them and you can't say like this part's really boring oh it is you can't be like this human plot is bad they're like, no, yeah. no, it's important to understand the kaiju. It's like, no, it's not right now. No. Sometimes, yes. Sometimes. Right now, get rid yeah. of it. Absolutely. No, I agree. No, it is. And that's, I, I always, I like to say that, like, when I'm watching old, you know, movies like that, that I absolutely adore, I feel like I'm kind of simultaneously laughing with them and laughing at them. Like, there is a kind of fascination of it being out of date. There is a fascination of it being you know, of the fact that they talk funny. You're just like, man, they really make movies like this in the sixties or, you know, the, that that's part of what's fun. You know, these little weird choices, you know, because of technology or just like we tell stories differently now. Um, but yeah. And part of it is a lot of them are bad. Like it doesn't mean that they're not fun, um, but they're not, a lot of them are bad or boring. You know, like you said, like there's a lot of them where you're just like, Yo, they did not, the human story did not progress the plot. I think it's just cheaper to make 45 minutes of humans running around in, in 15 <laughs> minutes of monster than, than an hour of monster, you know? Yeah, yeah. I, that was, that's the highlight of the whole interview for me, is having someone else <laughs> be willing to have a brave stance that, no, actually, the monsters are the most fun part. Oh, yeah, that's why, yeah. That's why we show up. <laughs> Although I did recently watch, um, rewatch, it's been, a, it's been a long time, maybe decades since I'd seen the very first Godzilla. Oh, so and good. it is so good. Like, it struck me how much it's just the human story is kind of just reeling from the disaster that is Godzilla and just trying. It's kind of like Shin Godzilla in that way, where you just see the authorities you're flailing and doing poorly like oh my god now we're gonna try electricity oh no it didn't work it's getting closer you know like there isn't this other like plot of the humans actually having much power or anything they're just kind of victims in it and um that coupled with like the lighting in that movie the black and white within like the the lighting on that that friggin puppet or or suit depending on which shot is scary it's Mm -hmm. like you see the toys you see the sculpts you see that suit from the first one and it often looks goofy but then you see it in the movie with actual like the dramatic lighting and it's freaking scary it's really good i got to see it on the big screen for the first time two years ago man like i liked that movie but i loved that movie after walking out of that that they don't make them like that anymore, man. Unless no. they're Guillermo del Toro, then they do. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah, I do love that. I remember Guillermo talking about when they were first starting designing the creatures for Pacific Rim, and he had said something to the effect of uh, talking to his designers. He was like, "Go make some cool monsters, but but make them in a way that a human anatomy could fit on the inside." And I thought that was a cool place. Now, obviously, like a large budget, very modern version of a kaiju story. But I did like that he was starting from that place of, you know, let's make our design something that a human could. If it was a suit, a human could fit in it, you know. 
Yeah. And it makes a difference. Yeah. I, the tactility makes these accessible. There's a lot of talk about how to make a monster movie or a kaiju movie accessible. And I think it is just finding ways to ground it in our world. As silly as it seems, like actually having that physical monster stand in that set puts me into it more than almost anything else. The second it feels weightless, I'm gone. Yeah. Yeah. True. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So you talked about self-publishing this so that you could make it everything you wanted it to be. Let's talk a little bit about your Kickstarter for this project. How can the people that have listened to this and liked it best support you? What has it been like launching this on Kickstarter? Just tell us all about that. Yeah, so it's called Snarlagon. Um, If you search it um, in Kickstarter, it'll certainly come up. Also on my in all my, my social media and whatnot, it's you know, the link is available and I'm posting about it constantly. Uh, but it's gone great. I hadn't kickstarted. I'd kickstarted a project that I wrote last year that went really well, but otherwise I hadn't kickstarted anything since the very, you know, beginning of Headlopper before it ended up at Image, which is, you know, 10 years ago or something. So, but it changed a lot since then, obviously, you know, it's become a really viable, you know, place, you know, marketplace to sell comics. And so I wanted to make something kind of without the pressure of a, of a deadline from a publisher, but also I wanted to do an experiment, you know, in 2023, be like, I'm very grateful for my publishers and they've been awesome, completely awesome. But, you know, I'm also curious, it's been a long time since I've tried to do it without them. Like what, what can a creator in 2023 do on their own? You know, like, can they have a big enough fan base to, you know, compete with the what they can do through um, through publishers or whatever, I think it's a great start. Um, I think we're like three hundred and sixty percent funded or something like that, and there's two more weeks. So for me, that's you know my only metric for success. It's a ten dollar book, also it's super cheap. So you know the uh, you don't see the dollar amounts rise you know super rapidly like a hundred dollar book. So I've been keeping an eye on just like backers and so and like how many copies of the books are going out. So for me, it seems like the average Kickstarter that succeeds has like 500 followers or whatever. So that's kind of my benchmark, hit 500. Um, and then everything after that's kind of like gravy. So I think we've so far got, you know, 800 something books going out the door. So that I'm, I'm pumped. That's That's awesome. I'm really excited about that. That yeah, and I was shocked when it was ten dollars. I'm not gonna lie. I went, you emailed me, and I was like, oh word, and I went to go back it immediately, and I was like, that is crazy. <laughs> well, that's thing. That's the thing is that you know, you know, I have like say when I'm at conventions of the books I do have, you know, I have Apocalyptic Girl that I did at Dark Horse, and that's a hardcover version these days. So that's twenty bucks. All the headloppers are like twenty bucks, and I was just like, man, all my books are. A, available in stores, so there's not as much you can just buy from me personally at a convention or whatever. Um, and uh, and everything's, you know, $20. So I just, I that was a goal. Is like I want to design this whole project to be something that's kind of easy and fun for me to make, but also easy to get. Like, I didn't want, I, I wanted, that's one of the things, like I wanted kids to be able to read it if they wanted. And I wanted anyone who wanted it to be able to, you know, afford it. So that was a goal was like 
design this, you know, from the top to be 10 bucks, you know, so it's so it's not a big deal to, to try it out. Yeah. So you heard it here, listeners. It's not a big deal to try it out. Give him your ten dollars. <laughs> it's ten dollars. You can do that's lunch. And this is better than lunch. So uh, thank you, Andrew, so much for your time. Um, where can the people find you? What are your social media handles? Where What projects do you want them to go follow other than Snarlagon? Yeah, so Snarlagon's on uh, on Kickstarter right now. We've also got like prints and T-shirts and sketches in the incentive packages. Um, you can also go to artofandrewmcclain.com. I try to keep that calendar up to date um, with all my conventions and signings and stuff. We'll be doing a little bit of a... Um, book tour this fall with Snarlagon. So hopefully we'll be hitting, you know, a good number of comic shops to, to do signings. Um, but then on for social media, there's uh, like art of Andrew McLean fan page on uh, Facebook, I think, but the best, the best most up to date place is my Instagram, which is just my name, no punctuation or anything, just Andrew McLean. Um, and I post there almost every day and there's links to Snarlagon and the other websites, um, like laser wolf attack. Um, the company I run with my wife, who's, uh, publishing this book. Um, so that's definitely kind of my social media hub on Instagram. Fantastic. Well, thank you again so much for your time and everybody, we will see you next week. Bye. Thanks so much.